Contra is Contra is nuanced. Contra, Contra is, is transgressive. Good trouble. Contra, Contra is, is collaborative. Contra is a podcast. Is a space for thinking about design critically. Contra is subversive. Contra is texture. You are listening to Solidarity Chats, a special section of the Contra podcast on disability, design justice, and the life world. These episodes, recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, focus on disability, eugenics, and mutual aid. We're hoping to capture some of the conversations that disabled people and our allies are having about issues such as healthcare infrastructure, medical triage, eugenics, and technology as it is unevenly distributed across the population. These episodes are also going to come out at a different rate than the regular Contra episodes. So please make sure to subscribe on Google, Apple, or Stitcher so that you don't miss any. This is Amy Hamrai, and I'm so excited to be here with Aya Nuruddin, who is a PhD candidate in the Department of the History of Medicine and graduate fellow in the Center for Medical Humanities and Social Medicine at Johns Hopkins University. In the 2018-2019 academic year, she was a dissertation fellow at the Consortium for the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. She also holds a master's in history and a master's of library science from the University of Maryland College Park. Her dissertation entitled Liberation Eugenics, African-Americans and the Science of Black Freedom Struggles, 1890 to 1970, analyzes African-American engagement with eugenics, hereditarian thought, and racial science as part of a broader strategy of racial improvement and black liberation. Her research interests also include the histories of scientific racism, public health, psychiatry, and disability. Her work has been published in the Journal for the History of Medicine and Allied Sciences, Nursing Clio, and Somatosphere, and she has appeared on the Disability History Association podcast and American History TV on C-SPAN. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, I So I found out about your work through a colleague, Jay Birdie, um, who is also a historian of medicine and shared a piece that you'd written about eugenics and anti-Blackness in this moment of coronavirus. So do you want to um, summarize your position and some of your research for our audience? Uh, sure. So basically, my research is trying to look at the ways that Black people have historically um, sought to mobilize racial science and eugenics to push back against scientific racism. And though that seems paradoxical, there's a lot of ways in which the people that I look at believe that there's um, a correct and scientific way to study race and the sort of biological components of race, or what they understood to be the biological components of race. Um, and by studying those, they argued that they could actually biologically improve the race as part of a broader sort of multifaceted approach to um, addressing different forms of um, racial discrimination and structural inequality. Um, and so they, there's these really interesting moments where people are, you know, sort of arguing that there's a right and wrong way to do eugenics and that there's these 
sort of forms of eugenics that are actually useful to black people. And even though ultimately um, it does not actually play out in the ways that they hoped or anticipated, it's still useful for thinking about um, the different uh, forms and variations and ways that people sort of interpret and reinterpret what eugenics can and can't be in the 20th century. Yeah, that's so interesting. And it's I'm curious about that difference between kind of the intentions um, and the, um, you know, outcomes of that process. How how do you see some of that manifesting in our present discourse? One of the things that's sort of present, um, especially around issues of coronavirus in this in this moment is the ways that um, eugenic thinking is still very deeply embedded in the ways that we think about race, the ways that we think about difference, the ways that we think about um, vulnerability, and the ways that we think about who can and cannot benefit from participation in American society. Um, eugenics seems to be almost like the underpinning of the ways that um, different groups are prioritized or not prioritized and whose well-being is often on the line um, in moments of um, epidemics and in crisis. So this is a really a moment in which uh, eugenic uh, logics are sort of exposed uh, in ways that uh, for a lot of people, they are not usually visible. Yeah, for sure. Um, are there specific examples that you can think of that might be familiar to some folks in the audience for how um, these eugenic logics are being exposed now? Um, I think particularly a lot about um, the ways in which people with disabilities are sort of being framed in this moment. I keep seeing stories, for example, of um, people with lupus who are unable to get hydroxychloroquine because now it's being touted as this um, miracle drug. I've seen uh, stories of people who, uh, or even just rhetorics of people being needing to be sacrificed or this sort of narratives of particular bodies as expendable um, that are very much rooted, I think, in, in this eugenic um, logic. One case that I saw on Twitter last week was a woman who was talking about, I believe it was her mother, um, who had received a double lung transplant in the double lung transplant in the past for cystic fibrosis, um, but was otherwise healthy being preemptively asked by her doctor to sign a do not resuscitate order um, just in case she were to get coronavirus that they would preemptively not use, you know, ventilators or other kinds of technology to save her life. And the fact that people with uh, disabilities are being treated as expendable or being asked to sacrifice themselves on the altar of capitalism um, is, a, a certainly a very eugenic way of thinking about uh, the value of, of human life. Yeah, it's so um, it's so shocking the way that in the example that you gave uh, the 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 quote unquote sacrifice was also predetermined or almost like scheduled. Mm -hmm, um, so mm -hmm. it's related to these ideas of the inevitability of disability as like being death or as being um, some sort of disqualification that you know is just taken for granted as um, fine to slate for elimination. Um, and it reminds me of a lot of um, the historic, like the way that eugenics historically has reached into fields like agriculture and forestry and, um, you know, these, these types of practices where culling the herd, quote unquote, is mm -hmm. um, understood as like a necessary or inevitable 
process for maintaining the health of a population. Um, and we're seeing such explicit references to that now. They're not even, you know, hidden or implied in policies and things like that. It's literally like, well, you know, you're probably not going to survive this. So you may as well just sign over your technology and your resources now. And the other thing that you said that I think is really important to remember is that it is literally asking people to sacrifice their lives to capitalism. Because the problem is not that like, all of these people are just inevitably going to die. It's that there are adverse health outcomes for people who don't have access to life-saving treatment and technology, right? And this is something that disability activists and advocates always talk about is that like, you know, disability itself is not a death sentence. It's an inaccessible society or a non-supportive society that makes disability a problem. So I wonder, um, can you give us a little bit of historical insight into how these, like what specific things have eugenesis been cultivating over the last 150, 200 years that are manifesting in these present day normalizations of like calling the herd in the name of capitalism? So some examples that um, I think of a lot are the ways that um, who has historically been vulnerable or exploited in these kinds of moments of, of crisis. So eugenicists um, in the 20th century are particularly worried about questions of what they were calling like race suicide or racial degeneration, where they think that the presence of what they would term as people who are eugenically unfit um, is sort of going to have this collective um, destruction for other people. So the, the, the very existence of people with disabilities and racial minorities and, and people with chronic illness represented a threat to this sort of collective well-being of, of a sort of, of a sort of um, eugenic society. Um, and so all of the eugenic measures we see in the 20th century, things like the uh, eugenic marriage laws, things like compulsory sterilization laws, which are disproportionately obviously targeted towards people with disabilities and, um, and, and black people as well. Um, the sort of long histories of long-term institutionalization of people with um, a, a variety of disabilities are all ways that eugenicists saw as essential to sort of maintaining the the sort of collective fitness of a, of a population and so the ways that those translate now i mean we even still see the legacies of um reproductive control right where this sort of reproduction is still very much like legislated the sort of allocation of resources i, I recently saw something about alabama I think it was Alabama, had decided that um, people who had sort of mental or intellectual disabilities um, would not be prioritized for access to ventilators should they um, get COVID-19, right? Um, the fact that um, people with disabilities uh, are much more likely to experience other kinds of structural inequality, right? And especially with this sort of intersectional identities, all of these are, are holdovers from um, what I would describe as the heyday of the eugenics movement. And even though the movement doesn't exist in the way that it did in the first half of the 20th century, in a lot of ways, um, policymakers, legislators, people you know, in power um, are still asking and thinking in the same frameworks that those eugenicists uh, were using you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago, right? And so even though sometimes the practices and the tools that, that 
people are sort of mobilizing in our current moment are, are somewhat different from what we see in the early 20th century. The logics and the continuities are, are playing out in a lot of the same ways because the same people continue to be uh, vulnerable and the same people continue to be treated as uh, expendable. Yeah, um, these both the logic of expendability and who is made vulnerable is uh, it's been so shocking to see in this moment how many of the categories of people that are uh, deprioritized in triage situations were the same categories that eugenicists were obsessed with studying like in the 19th century. Um, like BMI is one of the categories, body mass index, and some of the foundational studies of eugenics were about body size and body mass mm -hmm. um, and kind of creating categories of like, you know, different types of humans and who is fit for, um, you know, military service and who is a quote unquote useless eater, like all of these uh, sorts of categories. And of course, there's a disproportionate and racialized impact because of the legacy of eugenics in racial science, as you pointed out earlier. Um, but also the ways that like, I, I feel like all of these contemporary eugenicist practices are racist without people really understanding why they are racist, because mm. they don't often seem explicitly so. Like, it's not... Um, any longer, or I mean, it still is in some places, but it's not, the emphasis is not on like sterilization according to race and reproduction. It's on um, not addressing health disparities or not recognizing systematic um, structural determinants of health and things like that. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that um, in, in terms of like who now we know is disproportionately dying from COVID-19 and then also the broader structures that are making that the case. So what I've seen of the of different states reporting their racial data of um, mortality from COVID-19, it seems to be disproportionately Black people. And I think one of the ways that this sort of eugenic logic reveals itself is that if this, if this disease was disproportionately killing billionaires, or if it was disproportionately killing other folks in power, the response would look really, really different. But because it's disproportionately affecting Black people, not only just because of the, the nature of the virulence of the disease, right, we've already seen the death rate has, you know, uh, been tremendous in a lot of ways, but the fact that it's exacerbated by the fact that um, a lot of folks who are considered essential workers in this moment, right? That work in grocery stores, that work for the postal service, that work in or have to use public transportation, right? They That because they are unable to sort of, um, because of existing structural inequality, unable to do things like actually shelter in place and stay at home. Um, and if we think about also like populations who are experiencing homelessness or folks who are incarcerated in prisons, in ICE facilities, et cetera, right? These are the groups that are disproportionately being affected. And because it's those groups, the response has not been, has, has not had the same kind of urgency that it would have if other people were affected, right? Because these are populations that um, sort of power structures in our society tell us don't matter, then people respond in turn, right? And it also illustrates not only the, the sort of ways that eugenics sort of operates in the ways that the state is responding, but also in the ways that regular people, sort of average, you know, 
people are sort of even talking about what the response can and can look like, right? The fact that you're like you were saying, where folks are making this argument, well, it's culling the herd, or you know, thinking about certain uh, people being a quote unquote burden on the system or a strain on the system, um, or even I've seen um, the ways that the, the survival of the fittest is is invoked, and it's invoked not actually in its quite accurate um, context, but sort of in this in this ways that in the ways that people sort of misinterpret. And, and sort of misunderstand what the survival of the fittest is. And so um, there's a lot of different ways that this is, is playing out, but just even regular folks are, are using this language, especially when we think about things in terms of um, uh, sort of individual freedoms versus a collective good, where people will say, well, I wanna do what I wanna do. Um, I'm not gonna be affected by this even though staying at home is recommended, you know, for the sort of collective well-being of, of lots of groups of people, especially those who are, you know, high risk, um, people sort of making the argument, well, I'm gonna do what I want, and if you're negatively affected by my actions, well then, you know, sort of good riddance, right? And that's this sort of um, way that a sort of individual uh, flavor form of eugenics uh, plays out as well. So there's lots of these different, um, places and sort of nodes of, of what eugenic thinking looks like and, and the ways that it overlaps with some of the, the, the language and rhetoric that um, comes out of the eugenics movement of the early 20th century. Can you, um, can we go back to survival of the fittest? This is really interesting. So how are sure. people using that concept um, and how is the way that it's being deployed different than some historical ways of thinking about survival of the fittest? So I think the, the way that, that, that I sort of understand it, uh, people are using survival of the fittest to basically label themselves as superior in this moment where, or, as, or use it as, as a way to justify um, their own personal actions. Well, I'm gonna do what I want. And since I am this fit person, as I think of myself, um, I will be unaffected by the consequences of these of these actions. Whereas I think the the origin of the concept is more to think about um, the the sort of uh, when we're thinking about like evolution and, and struggles uh, is sort of more in the animal realm. And so we think about like food chains and predators and things like that, um, and less so just about the sort of individual. Um, human capacity and that's often the way that it's that it's used right that i am fit and so therefore i will survive and whether or not anybody else does is you know sort of inconsequential and that's not quite the the, the framework that it, it was originally theorized in it certainly overlaps but it's not it's not as neat and tidy as i think a lot of yeah, folks would like that's to think so it interesting i actually had not thought about it that way um that like in darwin's Kind of original conceptualization it would have been more of like an ecosystem uh like ecosystem like systems based way of thinking about it um and that that may in some ways inform like how we could uh advocate for systematic and structural changes um and paying attention to vulnerability and thinking of capitalism as a predator possibly um <laughs> Ooh. I, like, I think that's, that's yeah. something. Oh, yeah, totally. About, right. 
that like capitalism is what is preying on people and killing people right now, right? And um, and and nevertheless is taken as the uh, natural uh, like soup that everything else is kind of floating around in, right? That it's just like not even there. Mm. Um, great. Well, so what are some alternatives to eugenic? thought and action in this moment? And are there any projects or causes or organizations that you are driving inspiration from right now? Well, I think um, if we were to, I like thinking about um, imagining what our, our world would look like if the sort of political or you know systems of power were actually designed to protect people right, instead of ex uh, being designed to generate profit and extract labor. Um, so I think, you know, I was talking about this on a, on a virtual roundtable uh, I did on uh, eugenics just last week, and uh, one of the things we were thinking about is, um, can, you have, uh, can you have politics or a political system that isn't inherently eugenic? And what I would say to a, a question like that is, I think you can have you can have politics that aren't eugenic, but it's hard to have eugenics that isn't political, right? And so uh, I like to think about what would what would the United States as a country look like if our sort of founding principles that kind of govern the way that we function um, were designed with the protection of black people, of the protection of people with disabilities, of the incarcerated, uh, of, of immigrants, if those were baked into the founding principles uh, of this country, then what, how would things look really different right now? And it's, a, it's obviously very speculative because this was not the case, but it's, it's an interesting way to think about what would it mean if, if things were not built on, on racial hierarchy or if they weren't built on sexism and homophobia and, and ableism and all of these things. Um, and that people could actually sort of live to full and actualized lives without, you know, the exploitation of capitalism. But hi, Jereen. Um, I think things that are giving me inspiration right now are a lot of the, the mutual aid networks I'm seeing. I'm currently in Baltimore and there's a, a fairly robust mutual aid uh, network that's uh, happening here and they're doing incredible work filling the gaps that are basically created by the state um, uh, and that have left people extremely vulnerable in, in this uh, pandemic. Uh, we just got racial data out about um, COVID-19 deaths in Maryland and it's like other states disproportionately black people. And there's a lot of these mutual aid groups that are doing incredible work here. Um, I would uh, also encourage folks, if you have access um, to, uh, or you have the ability to donate to a food bank, absolutely do that. Food banks are doing incredible work right now. If there's a mutual aid network in your area, give them whatever you can give them, give them money, time, support, whatever you can do. Um, a lot of the folks that have also inspired the ways that I'm thinking about um, what eugenics looks like in this moment are some of the folks that I did this virtual roundtable with last week, um, William Horn at Villanova and Kathleen Bryan at Western Washington University. I'm also um, really indebted to a lot of folks in the disability justice activism community who have really 
taught me a lot about how to think about the, the work that the people in my research are doing. So Talila Lewis and Lydia Brown and Amani Barberin, um, groups like Not Dead Yet have really profoundly shaped the ways that I think about what able, like the violence that ableism does and the ways that it's also inflected with eugenics. Um, and so I'm really indebted to the, the, the work that um, all of them are doing to help me think about not only just the ways eugenics looks in, in my historical research, but the ways that it sort of exists currently in the world and all of its sort of heinous renditions. Um, and it's just been, it's been really interesting in this moment to see the, the networks that have been forming, right? The, the kinds of networks and solidarities um, that are, are really illustrating like what, again, what I was saying before about like what our society would look like if, it, if caring for the vulnerable was its first priority. And I'm just seeing just amazing things unfold in not only the city that I live in, but also um, just the kinds of conversations that, and, and discourses that I'm seeing on social media. Um, what I think though the issue there can be is that I think people see a lot of these really beautiful networks and solidarities and, and charities doing incredible work and they think that that's enough when really this is the responsibility of the state to do this work, right? And people are filling the gap because capitalism um, has made the state uninterested in, in, in fulfilling that goal, but um, it's still uh, it's still extremely uh, incredible to see the ways that people are coming together um, in this moment in spite of, of everything that's going on. Thank you so much for those beautiful observations about solidarity and also about responsibility and um, not ceding all of our agency to the state, but also demanding that it fulfill its obligations. And it seems like eugenics is an area where we can continue to also put pressure on the state to try to produce some form of accountability because so many of these actions are state-sponsored. They're maybe in part generated by health capitalism and you know uh healthcare like insurance companies and stuff but it's also ultimately the state that is codifying them and so um that gives us so much to think about um any final thoughts about anything um i would just say that um this has been a treat to have the, this conversation on here with you today um and just also i, I guess uh, maybe a a call to folks to um, maybe pay the, you know, pay attention when you see the, the, the language of expendability and sacrifice and the, the sort of framing of how lives are valued and which, and which people's well-being is prioritized and, and recognizing that that is a sort of modern iteration of eugenics. Um, and there's certainly many ways and many forms that have, you know, unfolded across the 20th century, but the, the sort of what we're seeing right now is yet another form that's deeply infused with with um, with capitalism, and so just be aware of that kind of of language when you see it, and we see those kinds of logics playing out because that's exactly the kind of thing that is is uh, doing irreparable harm um, to to very vulnerable groups of people right now. Excellent. Thank you so much, Aya. This is really wonderful. Um, I enjoyed talking to you and um, I'll definitely include links to your piece and um, other things that we discussed in the show notes. Thanks for having me. This was great. 
You've been listening to Contra, a podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. Contra is a production of the Critical Design Lab. Learn more about our projects at mapping-access.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. The Contra podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international 3.0 license. That means you can remix, repost, or recycle any of the content as long as you cite the original source, aren't making money, you don't change the credits, and you share it under the same license.